in the upper room discourse that is found in John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. Some people call that new commandment the 11th commandment. As you know, in the Old Testament, there are 10 commandments, and they see this new commandment of Jesus as a new commandment, the 11th commandment. I simply like to call it the love commandment. It's Thursday, so to speak, in the last week of Jesus' life. On Friday, he will be crucified during this week. And before Jesus goes to the cross, he gives his disciples a new commandment. And that new commandment is found in John chapter 13, verse 34. It says, our Lord speaks to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. The love commandment made a deep, deep, deep impression upon the Apostle John. It radically changed his thinking. It radically changed the way that he actually wrote scripture. Uh, When you come to his writings, there's a great emphasis on love. And particularly when we come to 1 John, and I've mentioned this before, but John has so much to say about love. The vocabulary that he writes with is centered on love. 28 different times he talks about to love as an action. 18 times he uses love as a theme. Six times he refers to his readers as dearly loved, our beloved ones. And then on top of that, wherever you go in this letter, John talks about loving one another. There are extended passages in 1 John on the subject of love. And we saw one of those extended passages in chapter 2, verses uh, verses 7 through 11. We labeled that message the love commandment. And we saw that the love commandment was imperative that this is something we must do, and also that the love commandment is important. Today, we come to another extended passage on love. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And I realize it's our human nature that when we hear something too much or too often, there is a tendency to ignore it and not pay attention like we should. Repetition doesn't always work for us the way that it should. But we need to be very, very careful that as we come to this text, as we encounter another time that John talks about love, that we don't just simply say, I've heard this before. John is not ignorant. He's not stupid. He knows that he has talked about love before. And yet he has no problem at all bringing it up again and again and again in this short letter of five chapters. And so we should not fall into the trap of thinking, well, I know this, I've heard this. 
The, the readers have heard John speak about love in chapter 2. John speaks about it again in chapter 3. He'll speak about it again in chapter 4. And in fact, other places, he'll talk about it again. And so the implication is that John wants us to repeatedly hear this message of love so that our lives will be characterized by love, that our lives will be changed by the love commandment. And so today, I want us to talk again about the love commandment. But the subject of our passage is why the love commandment matters. Why the love commandment matters. And John gives us three reasons why this love commandment matters. And the bottom line is that he wants us to know that what he's saying in this text does matter for you and for me as Christians. The the first reason why the love commandment matters is because it's a fundamental of the faith. It's a fundamental of the faith. You really can't talk about Christianity and leave the love commandment out. The love commandment and The Christian faith go hand in hand. I don't know what your perception of the Christian faith is, but if your perception of the Christian faith, if your idea of the Christian faith doesn't include the love commandment, then it is incomplete. John wants us to know the reason why the love commandment matters is because the love commandment is at the core, it's an essential, it's an integral part of the Christian faith. You take out the love commandment, and really the Christian faith is incomplete. John drives that home to us in verses 11 through 13. And he begins in verse 11. And I want you to look at your Bible and see this in your Bible, what he says in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. The transition to this verse is marked by the word for. And I bring that up because it's related, what John says in this verse, to what he just said previously in verse 10. When we looked at verse 10, John said, you can identify the children of God and the children of the devil. It's obvious there's a clear distinction between those who belong to God and those who belong to the devil. And John says, you know that a person belongs to the devil when that person does not love his brother. If you don't love your brother... John doesn't pull any punches. He says, you don't belong to God, but instead you belong to the devil. But then on the other hand, the implication is, is that if you do love your brother, then you belong to God. And that's what John is going to drive home in these verses. That's the message that he wants to communicate to his readers, that the mark of a child of God 
is that the child of God loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so John talks about the message in verse 11. The message. It's a message that was declared and proclaimed by John himself and by others. It was a message that was heard by these readers. As John writes to them, he said, this message that we declare to you, you have heard it. You've heard it with your own two ears. In your Christian life, in your Christian experience, this message has been declared to you. You have received it with your ears. And he says, the message is this, that we should love one another. That's the message that John says beyond a shadow of a doubt, you had proclaimed to you, you heard it with your ears. You heard that not only are you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, but John says, myself as an apostle, I'm to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. The message that John proclaimed, that others proclaimed, that these Christians heard is that we are to love one another. And John goes on to say that message you heard from the very beginning of your Christian existence. The point that he's making is that when you become a child of God, when you hear the gospel, inherent in that gospel message is we are to love one another. That's why we're saying it's a fundamental of the faith. You don't have a biblical Christianity that leaves out loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And John is certain that that's what he's proclaimed, that's what they have heard, and that was given to them not at the end of their Christian life, but at the very beginning. He says, you've heard this message from the beginning. From the very day that we spent time with you, the very day that the gospel was proclaimed to you, the very day that you saved, you heard that Christians are to love one another. That loving one another is an essential part of the gospel message. It's an essential part of the faith. But John wants to make sure that they understand what love looks like. And so he says in verse 12 that they are to love fellow Christians not like Cain loved. He brings in this individual named Cain. Now, for some of you, you know Cain. Others of you, you don't know if it's sugar cane or what. But, but Cain is mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, his relationship with his brothers. But basically what John is saying when he says that you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, make sure that you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ like Cain loved his brother. Make sure that you understand the, the love that I'm talking about. 
It's not a, the kind of love that Cain had for his brother. And he's using Cain as a counterexample of what it means to love your brother and sister in Christ. Now, again, you might not know much about Cain, but at least understand what John says about Cain in verse 12. The first thing that he says about Cain is that he, Cain, was of the evil one. Now, how would you like to be described in God's word? And the description is, you're of the devil. That's your father. That's the source of your life. But that's how John describes Cain. He was, when he existed on earth, of the evil one, which is just another name of the devil. The devil is described as the evil, the wicked one. So Cain was of the evil one. The second thing that John says about Cain as he paints his portrait is that Cain slew his brother. Some translations say Cain murdered his brother. So it's bad enough that you're of the devil, but now the the other part of your painting is that you're a murderer. And when you go back to Genesis 4, the, the story basically in a nutshell is what John is capturing when he says that Cain slew or murdered his brother. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, And it came about when they, that is Cain and his brother Abel, were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Cain, the son, first son, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, had a brother named Abel. And we've heard of sibling rivalries, the kids not able to get together. This is an extreme example, so to speak, but a real one. The time came that Cain literally killed his brother. And John wants us to know that about Cain. Uh, He uses the word slay or slew. Sometimes it could be translated cut the throat. But it's a term that is used in reference to animals being slaughtered. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as a lamb, a sheep, being led to the slaughter. And it's not saying necessarily that Cain pulled out a knife on his brother and cut his throat. But it is saying that, the, that he killed him and that it was brutal, that it was vicious, That it was of such an extent that it shocked individuals. It's one of those things that if TV had had existed during that time, they would have told you, don't look. 
This is too gruesome. This is too brutal. This is too vicious. But here is an individual, Cain, who actually killed his brother in a cold-blooded, merciless, vicious way. The third thing that John wants us to know about Cain is not only is he of the devil, not only did he kill his brother, but also he wants us to know the motive, the reason why Cain did it. John, as he's telling this story, as he's painting this portrait, raises the question, for what reason did he slay him? That's a good question. What would cause Cain to kill his own brother in such a brutal and vicious way? And John simply says it's because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So he paints this picture between that which is good and that which is evil, that which is righteous and that which is wicked. And the motivation, the reason why Cain killed his brother is because he was one whose deeds were evil. That was his life. That's what, who, who he was. That's why John could say he was of the devil. Murder does not just spring out of nowhere. Murder springs out of a life where individuals are practicing wickedness and evilness. And not only that, John wants us to understand that those who practice wicked deeds, evil deeds, have a problem with those who practice righteous deeds, godly deeds. And so that causes him to say in verse 13, brethren, to to grab their attention because he's going to tell them something that they need to be careful about. He says, brethren, I'm commanding you not to marvel, not to be startled, not to be surprised, not to be amazed if the world hates you. And that's something that Christians today even need to be aware of. Don't marvel. Don't be amazed. Don't be startled. Don't fall out of your chair because the world of unsaved people might hate you. Don't be shocked if you, as an able, practicing righteous deeds, are hated by a king who practices evil deeds. There's a conflict between those two. And opposition will be experienced. Uh, Just because you are living for God, just because you are producing righteous deed and righteous and godly fruit does not exempt you from wickedness in this world. The, The Bible repeatedly in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament point out that we can expect persecution, that we can expect to be harmed by others, not because we're peculiar 
are strange, are weird, but because our deeds are righteous. And in this day and age, as we continue to practice righteous deeds, trust me, those who are wicked and evil will not be happy or satisfied or delighted with how Christians live their life. If you take a stand for truth, if you live truth, if you model truth, you can expect to be hated by the world. So don't fall out of your chair. Don't come running to me and say, Pastor, they persecuted me. They hate me at my job because I say that same-sex marriage is sin or I say that homosexuality is sin. Don't be shocked. Don't be alarmed. John points out that Christians can expect to be hated. And so he says to his readers, the reality is, doesn't mean it will happen every day, every moment, but the reality is you will be hated. And when you're hated, don't marvel or be surprised or be amazed. Don't be shocked when you take a stand for certain things and practice righteous deeds that members of your own family will turn their back on you, will talk about you, will not want to be around you. Don't be shocked at all. And so why does the love commandment matter? It matters because it's a fundamental of the faith. When you talk about the Christian faith, you cannot leave out the fact that we are to love one another. And we need to make sure that our love doesn't look like Cain's love for his brother. But it's a righteous, godly love. And we can expect that that kind of love, that kind of lifestyle will encounter hate from those who practice sin and who practice evil deeds. The love commandment also matters because it's a sign of new life. It's a sign of new life. It's a sign that you belong to God, that you have been born again. That's the clear-cut teaching of verses 14 and 15. And again, look at your Bible. Make sure that verse 14 is etched in your mind. John says, we know that we have passed from death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. One of the great concerns of John in this letter is that he wants his readers to know that they know that they know that they know they have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 says it well. John says, I've written these things that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, I, I don't want you to exist as a Christian. I don't want you to go through your life as a Christian and be in doubt about your salvation. I don't want you to die and you don't know where you are going. John says, we can know. That's not arrogance. 
But that's a, a knowledge that God wants us to have in our walk with Christ. You're not going to make much progress in your walk with Christ if you're doubting your salvation. If you're doubting your salvation, you're going to be focused on that instead of being assured of your salvation and growing the way that God wants you to grow. So John says, look, I want you to know, despite what others might say about it, I want you to know that you have eternal life. And that becomes clear in verses 14 and 15, but he uses different terminology. He doesn't mention eternal life in verse 14. He said, said he talked about passing out of death into life. John says, we can know that we have passed out of the realm of death into the realm of life. We can know that we are no longer in the realm of spiritual death, but now are in the realm of spiritual life. John says, we know. He's not saying, oh, let's learn to know. He said, we know. John says, I know it. I've come to know this in the past. I still know it today. He says to his reader, you know. John is not questioning his reader's salvation at all. He's certain about it. He says, and you know that you have passed out of death into life. And that idea of that word to pass means to migrate. It's really a geographical term moving from one country to another. And John says that you and I as Christians, his readers as believers in Christ, can know that they had geographically migrated from the country of death into the country of life. That you pass from the country of spiritual death, that if you are a member of that country, a citizen of that country. When you die, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. But you can know that you passed out of that country into the country of spiritual life where you possess eternal life and you know that when you die, you go immediately into the presence of the Lord. You can know that. That can be a reality in your Christian walk. We don't have to wait till tomorrow or the next week, etc. You can know that now, and that can be a continuing knowledge in your life all the rest of the days of your life as a Christian. John, how can you be so certain? How can you be so dogmatic? How can we know? That when I die, I will spend eternity in heaven. How can I have the the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine? And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, is that just a fairy tale? Can I really know that? As a child of God, John says we can. He says we know that we passed out of death into life 
How do we know it? Because we love the brethren. That's how. Now, we don't necessarily like that answer. Maybe we prefer the answer, well, I repented of my sins and I put my faith in Christ. Maybe you prefer the answer, well, I'm a member of Fairview, or I'm a member of a church, or I possess the Bible, or I got baptized. No, John says, you want to know? <laughs> you want to be certain that you're no longer in the realm of spiritual death, but now you're in the realm of spiritual life? John says, we know because we love the brethren. That's not just one time. That's how we live. Do we sin? Yes. Do we fall short? Yes. But the person knows that they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They know that's what characterizes their life. They know that that is the evidence of their life. They're practicing the love commandment. They are loving each other. And so John says in light of that, the corollary truth that he mentions at the end of verse 14, he who does not love abides in death. John is a black and white person. Uh, If you're straddling the fence, John ain't going to help you. Uh, Either you love the brethren or you don't. Now, you can say, well, I think it's 60-40. I think it's 50-50. I'm just saying John is not going to be able to help you. John is black and white. And, And he says at the end of that verse, the one who does not love. He doesn't even mention his brother. He just simply says, love is not coming out of that person's life. Love is not practiced by that person. The person who does not love abides, one of his favorite words, abides, remains in the realm of death. That's his habitation. That's the sphere that he lives in. He's not out been transferred out of death into life. He abides in death. He's in the realm of death. He is spiritually dead. And if you think that's strong, if you think that's problematic, and you should, look at what he says in verse 15. He says in verse 15 that the person who does not love Not only is that person in the realm of death, but that person is the hater. You know how we like to say, oh, he's a hater. Well, here's the hater. John says, everyone who hates his brother, this is the hater. Everyone who practices hating his brother, and then he shocks us. We might have liked what he said in verse 14, abides in death. But no, he says, a murderer. The hater is a murderer. The hater is a Cain 
who, who slew his brother, who killed his brother, who brutalized his brother in a vicious death. You think that not loving someone is not significant? If you don't practice love, you abide in death. If you don't practice love, you're a murderer. Not that you've taken a knife and killed anyone. Not that you've taken a gun and put it at a person's head and killed them. But your hate that's in your heart is responsible for murdering that person. You're a Cain. Not because you picked up some weapon, but because in your heart is hate. In your heart is anger toward that brother. And John said, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. If that characterizes your life, you're a murderer. And he says, you know. You know that no murderer has eternal life. You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, please don't minimize what John is saying. He's not talking about, does that mean that if I kill somebody, I can't be saved? That's not what he's dealing with. You want to think about picking up a weapon. John wants to talk about your heart. He wants to talk about hate. And he wants us to realize that the one who practices hate, that individual, is a murderer. He abides in death. And he does not have eternal life. So why the commandment, the love commandment matters? It matters because it's a sign of new life. You and I can know that we have new life. It's not based upon the deeds we do at church. It's not based upon how many Bible studies we attend. It's not based upon whether we're a preacher or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher. It's based upon love for your brothers. And if you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are still in the realm of spiritual death You are a hater, and a hater is a murderer. The love commandment finally matters because it's the essence of Jesus' ministry. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. When you get to the core of Jesus' ministry, when you boil it down, the the work of Jesus is really characterized by the love commandment. And that's why he said to his disciples, love one another even as I have loved you. They had living proof when Jesus was with them on earth that he loved them. But the ultimate proof was not what Jesus did on earth earth when he was with the disciples, but when he hung on the cross. And so again, another verse to really look at, 1 John 3.16. Now we know John 
But we need to know 1 John 3.16. We know for God so loved the world, but we need to know this verse. And so John writes in verse 16, we know love by this. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. So there's a lot of different attempts to define love. What is love? Love is a mini splendor and all of that mess. John says, I'll tell you what love is. Love is not a definition and description. Love is an act. You want to know what love is? John says, Jesus laid down his life for us. That's love. If you want to understand love, if you want to comprehend what love is, if you want to know what God is asking you to do, go to the cross. Stop and ponder and meditate and understand what it means that Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. Laid down. It is a term used with regards to a garment that someone would take off of them and lay it down. Jesus laid down his life. He laid down his life. In other words, he was crucified. He was killed on Calvary's cross. That's what John is referring to, that Jesus laid down his life. He did that on Calvary's cross for you and for me. It was voluntary. Nobody made him do it. He chose to lay down his life on the basis of his own will and desire. It was vicarious, meaning that it should have been you. It should have been me paying the penalty for your sin and for my sin. But he was our substitute. He took our place. That's Good Friday. That's what we just celebrated, Good Friday. But there is no Good Friday without Resurrection Sunday. I hope you understand that. Good Friday apart from Resurrection Sunday is nothing. He laid down his life for us. And even though John doesn't mention it, on Resurrection Sunday, early in the morning, he got up from the grave. So the resurrection shows that the death of Christ was victorious. It accomplished its goal. John says, you want to know what love is? Don't go buy a bunch of books. Go to your Bible and reflect and think and ponder and chew on the death of Christ in your place. Linger at Calvary. Stay there until you understand what it means he laid down his life. And once you've I've done that. Leave and realize that when Christ laid down his life, it simply meant that he, it, that love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. 
The, the, the cross communicates that. Jesus talked about his ministry. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, but ultimately to give my life as a ransom. Love, when you look at the cross, is sacrificial. Now, now John wants his readers not just to know love. He said, by this we know love. He said, look, I want you to do more than know love. I want you to live love. He says, because of what Christ has done, there is a moral obligation placed upon the believer to do what? To lay down our lives. Just like he laid down his life, we are to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, now please don't misunderstand this. Nobody's calling on you to die on a cross and to pay the penalty for someone else's sins. First of all, you don't qualify because you're sinful. And it is a blasphemous thought to think that somehow Christ's death on the cross did not satisfy the holy and righteous God. It did. So you and I don't need to contribute anything. We don't need to add anything. So when John says we have a moral obligation to lay down our lives, what is he talking about? We are to sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters in Christ's sake. That's what we're called to do. And so we see a concrete example of laying down one's life to meet the needs of others in verse 17. Verse 17 talks about a person who's unidentified. This person is said to have the world's goods. Doesn't mean he or she is rich. This means that they possess the things to make living possible. This person has those world's goods. But John goes on to say in that verse, verse 17, that this person sees, beholds his brother in need. That is, with his own two eyes, a a brother, a sister in need comes into focus. It's not just something out of the corner of his eye. It's something that he sees himself. He sees the individual He sees the condition of the individual. And and he comes to the conclusion, this individual has a need. But, But John goes on to say that this individual, amazingly, but typically, but amazingly, closes his heart. He shuts the door of his heart. He shuts it, locks it with a key, and throw the key away. In other words, he sees the need and the compassion in him. He will not let it come out. He shuts the door on it. He barricades it. He prevents it. And does nothing at all about the person's need. He has the world's goods. He sees the need. 
and he prevents himself from doing anything about it. And that causes John to ask the question, how does the love of God abide in him? How can it be? How is it possible that God's love abides in that person? And he doesn't bother answering. He instead, in verse 18, gives them an exhortation. He says, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. He grabs their attention by referring to them as little children. John is their spiritual father. They are his spiritual children. And John wants to make that his spiritual children really get it. This person, verse 17, didn't get it. He didn't understand, he didn't comprehend what it means to love your brother. He he had the world's good. He saw the need. He, he, He shut his heart. He closed the door on doing anything. But, but, but John said, don't let that happen to you. Don't be guilty, John says, of loving in word or tongue. That is loving with the lips, tonguing people with your love. Worthless when a person's in a need. When a person's in need, they don't need you come kissing them. They don't need you come saying nice words. John is in agreement with James. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. James has that picture. There's a Christian brother and a Christian sister. They don't have proper clothing. They're hungry. And they come to you. They come to your house. They ring the doorbell. And you open the door. And you got your heat blazing, even though it's 20 degrees outside. It's 85 in your house. You're sitting down at the table eating steak and potatoes and greens. And they're hungry, starving. You know them. You see the need. And you invite them in not to enjoy the heat, not to enjoy the food, but to pray. You're spiritual. You're going to pray. Go in peace. Go in peace. Be filled. Be clothed. And James says, what kind, of, what, what kind of faith is that? What good is that kind of faith? And John is saying, what good is that kind of love? Loving in word and in tongue. That is speech. John says, don't love like that. Here's how you are to love. Love in deed and truth. That is, love must act. Love must work. Love must do something. And it must be real and genuine. So why does the love commandment matter? Because it's the essence of Jesus' 
ministry. My prayer is that God would use the words of the Apostle John to convince us that the love commandment matters. That this is not just another sermon, but that this becomes something that we practice in our lives. And if we're going to practice it, there's some questions I just want to simply ask of you and ask of myself. These are questions that I've directed to my own life. Does my practice of love resemble Cain or Christ? Do I lay down my brother or do I lay down myself? Do I hate and murder like Cain? Or do I love like Christ? Another series of questions. Am I certain? Do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have passed out of the spiritual realm of death into the spiritual realm of life? Is that a certainty with me? Do I know that I know that I know that I know that I am in the realm of spiritual life? And the only way you can be certain of that, at least here, according to John, is that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Then the last thing I would ask you and ask myself, is my love sacrificial? Christ's love was. It cost Christ to love and to lay down his life. But can it be said of me that I am laying down my life for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm not worried necessarily about what's going on in Africa or in Asia, but right here, fear of you, can it be said of me that I am loving you by laying down my life sacrificially. I know that was true of Christ, but is it true of me? Is it true of you? Am I one who possesses this world's goods and see needs in shut the door of my heart. I'm not just talking about people in financial needs. Our church has needs. I'm not talking about financial needs. I'm talking about the need for Christians to serve sacrificially, to be involved in ministry and and service. There's a need for ushers. There's a need for workers in children's church. There's a need for Awana workers. In the bulletin, you you probably don't even read it anymore. We've had a need for a janitor for ages. Is there anyone willing to lay down their life to meet that need? I know it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. It's getting warm in here because we don't have the air on only. (laughs) But... Are you willing 
to meet your brother and sisters in Christ's need by sacrificing. And I'll even say this to us who are on paid staff. I get paid to preach, to teach, to do the, but, but, but if my life, am I just doing that because I'm getting paid? Or is it evident that I'm sacrificing for others? Or am I just picking up a paycheck? This is good. I mean, I got a good gig here. They don't expect too much of me. And sometimes we can be like that. Evidence that we have a self-sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I thank God that there are people here at Fairview that it's clear that they are laying down their lives for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just want to suggest to you, just want you to think about it, laying down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ is more than coming to a worship service. It's more than coming to a Bible study. It means that you use your ability, your your talents, your gifts to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I will quit meddling and close us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that the love commandment matters. Help us to scrutinize this love commandment, to understand it, and to respond appropriately. Help us to love like our Lord Jesus Christ did. May we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.